This week on Writers Inc. As human beings, we typically don't make changes unless we're forced to, right? Um, you know, whether you have some kind of, you know, witness story or, you know, you lost your leg and now you're doing this or whatever. Everybody has varying degrees of little witness stories in their life that change them. Whether you are traditionally published or indie, writing a good book is only the first step in becoming a successful author. The days of just turning a manuscript into your editor and walking away are gone. If you want to succeed in today's publishing world, you need to understand every aspect of the business. Editing, formatting, marketing, contracts. It all starts with a good book. Then the real work begins. Join international best-selling author J.D. Barker and indie powerhouse Jay Thorne as they gain unique insight and valuable advice from the most prolific and accomplished authors in the business. The publishing world is changing, adapting. Do you have what it takes to become a full-time writer? If you're willing to do the work, we'll give you the tools. Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writer's Inc. How's it going, J.D.? Hey, man. So I am still toiling around with Amazon ads. And right after yes. we did our, our interview last week um, for Press Design, um, I, I get a message from, from Amazon saying that they're adding normalized, pa normalized page reads um, to the, the advertising dashboard. Um, so I, I don't know if you saw that or not. Did you, did you see that? I did. Yeah, I poked into that a little bit. And um, at first I thought, well, are, are they really calculating those from, from the ads? And in fact, they are. Uh, so yeah. I think that's, that's an interesting development now, how accurate that is, you know, we'll see. <laughs> that's the thing, right? Because, yeah. you know, like, I, I don't know how accurate any of the information on their dashboard is, you know, from sales numbers all the way through. I, I think if you do like a look back, like if you look at like a month ago, I think it's accurate, but if you're trying to watch it, you know, like hour by hour, or even looking at yesterday, uh, it, it doesn't seem to catch up. And I'm guessing they just have a, a lot of different databases that all have to sync up in order for, for that information to show up there. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is, it is showing per ad. So somehow they're figuring that out. When somebody clicks on an ad, they're tagging that person and they're following them through into, into Kindle Unlimited and, and watching what they're doing, um, which is a very big brother thing to, <laughs> to do, yeah, but yes. <laughs> it's, it's cool from, from our standpoint. Um, so I've been trying to figure that into my, my ACOS and ACOS is basically your, your, you know, the amount you're paying per ad versus the amount that you've got in sales. Um, so I've been factoring that in and I, I did a little research it and found that a page read at the moment is worth 0 0.00. 488 cents. Um, so if you do the math there, so if you've got 10,000 page reads, you just multiply that out and then add it to your, your ad cost um, or your uh, sales cost. And that kind of, you know, clues you in as to where you really are. Right. Um, Cause I'm, I'm still trying to find some kind of magic formula, you know, being an Aspie, like I have to have, you know, like math behind everything. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what I've been doing is I've been taking a um, hundred and then subtracting my, my a cost from that number. And then whatever is, is left, that's my advertising budget for the day. So mm. if I've got an a cost of 40, um, you know, I, I subtract, you know, 40 from a hundred and then I spend $60 a day on, on that particular ad. Um, which seems to work because the lower your A cost is, obviously the higher your sales and the better. So I'm spending more on, on those ads and it seems right. to play out pretty well. Um, so we'll see how that goes. Uh, Press Design is still a, a big experiment for me, but it, it does seem to be working. Yeah. Um, something else hit the news and, and I didn't really see this coming. I, did you ever listen to the podcast um, Serial? I did. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They just got bought by the New York Times. Oh, I didn't know that. That must have just I, happened, I, huh? Yeah, it was just um, you know, the the podcast itself updated on my my iTunes player, and there was just a little two minute you know like press release kind of announcement from their host, um, okay, saying that and they're saying there's a new season coming, but um, New York Times now owns them, 
um, which is, which is cool. I've, I've been seeing that quite a bit, like, you know, podcasts getting scooped up by, you know, larger entities, whether it's Spotify or, you know, some of the news services, I think they're trying to just, you know, New York times trying to branch out from print, um, things like that. So an interesting time to, to have a podcast, you know, there, there's a million like this one, um, you know, but you know, if you stand above the, the crowd or if you stand out from the crowd, um, you know, but apparently people are, are watching for that. Yeah, that Joe Rogan deal was unbelievable. And yeah. and the fact that Spotify is going to make that exclusive, like, I don't know how I feel about that. I know it's Joe Rogan and 99.9% .9 of podcasters will never, never sniff anything like that. But what does that mean if big media companies can can purchase some IP and make it exclusive, especially in a world where like podcasting, it's been available everywhere. Like, I, I don't know how I feel about that. I don't either. I mean, but you know, everything is just evolving and, and it's evolving quick. Um, I was looking at the audio um, market too, and, and like audio in general and sales, they, they had double digit growth last year for the, the eighth year in a row. Um, you know, I'm constantly telling authors, especially indie authors to get out there and get audio books created for their books um, because it's a huge revenue source. And a lot of people don't like to spend that initial, you know, couple thousand dollars right. to get it done or they're, they're not able to, but it is so worth it. Um, but, but there's another trend that's happening now too. I'm starting to see um, services crop up that have uh, subscription based audio books. Um, my wife found one, I think it's either called Scribd or Scribd. I'm yeah. terrible with pronouncing these things, um, but she's paying $10 a month for all the audio books she can consume. Um, you know, I'm, I'm the jackass on the other side who's still paying 1495 to listen to one audiobook on audible. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, the, is it, you know, I'm wondering, is this going to go, you know, the, the Spotify kind of route where, you know, creators are going to see pennies, you know, for where they used to get, you know, dollars, you know, if, if you ever talk to a musician who's got it, you know, an album out there or, or, or a song, even a hit song, you know, they'll show you their check for like $3 and 25 cents. Yeah. That's not know, where they're making their money. No. And, and I'm wondering if audiobooks are going to kind of head in that direction. And I was listening to Joanna Penn and she was talking about uh, GPT-3, uh, yeah. um, which is crazy stuff, but it's, it's coming. I mean, it basically it, it's a system that allows uh, a person to license their own voice. Um, so somebody like Tom Cruise could go out there. I'm guessing he would have to hash through some scripts to teach this computer his, his voice and his vocals, um, you know, styles. And then it's able to read an audiobook in, in his voice or, or whoever's voice. And, you know, if we're at that point now, I mean, imagine where it's going to be in a couple of years. It's, we're not very far off from people being able to, you know, have an audiobook created for, for pennies on the dollar, which is going to flood the market, you know, because right now the, the cost to, to create is really what's keeping that market slim. Um, so when it gets cheap, you're going to see, you know, like with Amazon, we went from 100,000 books being published in a year to a million books being published in a year. And you're going to see the same thing on the, the audio side. Um, so that's got me, me thinking. And the other, the other piece of it that I was trying to figure out is like, do I really want books, you know, read to me by computers um and even if it is a famous voice like our, our you know and we can't tell the difference and um you know like some of them are cool and some of them aren't so like i'll take stephen king you know as an example because you know obviously he's, he's somebody i really look up to um to me it's very cool to hear stephen king read his book on writing because he, he does the audio book for that so it's like it's almost it, it gives it the feel of stephen king sitting across the desk from you with his teacher's hat on explaining this is how i do it yeah you know so so to me that's very cool but on the flip side of that if you listen to the audiobook version of bag of bones which is his book you know he reads that one to you too and to me that one's a little creepier it, it, it's almost like Stephen King in the backseat of your car, you know, like tell, telling you the story, you know, instead of a narrator who's a little bit more ambiguous out there. So it's, it's a fine line. Um, and the other thing that's come up, and I know I'm rambling here about audiobooks, but it's been a big week for audio. Um, I've got an offer on the table from a company that wants to do a, a full cast um, uh, audio drama for a book that I've got out there right nice. now. 
Um, well, it is, but I've been listening to them and, and I don't know that I like audio dramas. I, have you ever listened to one of those? I, I have more podcasts and audiobooks, but like the multicast drama. Yeah, I have. I, I, it's kind of reminds me like old time radio. It does, um, but I think there's a fine line there too. So like Dracul, they did a full cast um, of narrators. I think there were eight different narrators on that book. And, and that is, it came across very cool. Um, the one I'm listening to now that these guys sent me as a, as a sample, um, it, it's a full on audio drama with sound effects, you know, you have machine guns in the back. There's, you know, a full score that was created for this. I mean, they, they went all out. Um, and it gives me the impression of like the TV being on in the other room where you can hear it, but you can't see it. Yeah. Um, and it, it's difficult to follow the story. Story, um, I, I think mainly because you don't have those those cues that you have in a you know in a book you know like Bob opened the cabinet like that you know nobody tells you that all you hear mm-hmm. is a squeak um, and it, my mind wanders a lot more listening to these audio dramas so yeah, I'm not sure point. that I yeah I'm not sure that I'm quite on board with those but you know it, my my point in all of this is audio itself is exploding um, if you are an indie author and you're not taking advantage of it you're you're missing out because the the gravy train for lack of a better term I, I think is coming to an end I, I think we're a couple of years off from this becoming a very competitive marketplace and it's going to be a lot more difficult to, to succeed. Yeah, I agree with that. It's audio is definitely something we all have to be paying attention to right now. Oh, it, it, what actually spurred all this is um, Six Wicked Child actually won an award for, for Thriller of the Year. Oh, um, the, nice. The, the audio book. So that, that's what got me hunting about all this audio ah, stuff. Congrats, so. man. Um, wh- when did you find that out? Um, I actually found out on Twitter. <laughs> it's like I didn't I didn't get an email from my agent, and I didn't hear from the from recorded books who actually produced the audio book. Um, but I saw a tweet from one of the narrators on on Twitter. Um, and, and I, I've been learning more and more. Like you know, that same book is on three different bestseller lists right now in in foreign countries. And like with all three, I learned about it on Twitter like, instead of the the normal channels. Um, so yeah, this 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 world is changing a, a, across the board. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so anyway, um, so you've got a, a big announcement kind of sort of today too, don't you? Yeah. Related uh, to your book? Yeah, I kind of want to pick your brain a little bit um, because I'm not going to call it a first draft. I'm not going to call it a 0.5 draft, but I finished the first draft of the manuscript you've been helping me with. And uh, Jeff Elkins has been helping me with the, with the dialogue. And uh, this week I've, I finished the last of the dialogue only first draft. And so I was wondering like, what do I, where do I go next with this? It's, it's a hot mess. I didn't write it in order. <laughs> like it's just dialogue. So I'm trying to figure out like, okay, what should the next step be? What are your thoughts? All right. So I know you had an outline for this. Are, yes. are you still on track with that outline? Yes. Or do you feel like you've gone off course? No, I feel like I've stayed pretty much true to that. Okay. So what I would do as a next step is I would take the, the scenes that the, the dialogue that get it all in the, the correct order. Okay. Um, make, make sure that flows. Um, then the next thing you're going to want to do, have we ever talked about the hierarchy of characters? It, it's something I've got in this, this book that I'm working on on writing, but I don't know if we've actually discussed it on the, the podcast. Okay. So one of the things that I, I learned early on when I was working as a ghostwriter is create a list of all the characters in your book um, and put them in order from, from most popular to least popular, or, you know, the amount of screen time that each one has. Um, so let's say you've got three main characters in your book and, and Bob Jones is, you know, your, your protagonist. Um, if Bob Jones and Sue, Sue Johnson walk into a room, uh, your POV should always be whoever is highest on that list. So if your characters are in order on your list of, of most important to least important, POV always goes to whoever's on the top of that list. Does that make sense? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's something you're, so you're going to want to create that, create the list of all your characters, and then you want to go through and make sure that, um, you know, the dialogue is, is on par with that. 
um, okay. you know, like your, your main character should have the most dialogue. Uh, typically, you know, depending on the size of your cast, um, you know, anywhere from like 50 to 60% sometimes of the dialogue should belong to a main character unless you've got a big cast and then it obviously goes smaller. But you know, the amount of dialogue should be on par with that, that list of hierarchy that you created for your characters. Um, the other thing that you want to pay very close attention to is have your characters grown. You know, I know you just tell, only have the dialogue at this point, but you know, there, there should be growth or change or some type of you know, alteration in that person from the beginning to the end. Um, if, if there isn't, see if you can create something, you know, throw something into the story to, to create that. Um, that that's extremely important. Okay. Uh, if, 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 if a character doesn't change, um, you know, sometimes that character doesn't necessarily need to be there. I start looking at things like that. Um, you know, if these two characters haven't changed, can maybe they be combined into one person? Mm. Um, yeah, and it, it doesn't take much, you know, just a, a little tweak. But, you know, pe people do grow. Uh, and a lot of that is based on time frame. Um, what, what's the time frame of your book? Is it a couple, a couple of days? A couple of weeks at the most. A couple of weeks. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, like the faster that it obviously takes place, you know, the less growth there's going to be, but you, you still want to see something. Right. Um, so, so that's where I would go next. Um, okay. Hammer, hammer all that out. Where, where are you on a word count? Uh, about 40,000. Okay. Uh, that's a, that's a pretty decent spot. Like 40 to 60 is probably where you want to be on something like this. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so so that's where you go next. And then after that, um, you know, once that's all fine too, and then you start adding in the fluff. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Uh, yeah, I can handle that. It, it's gonna be it's it's gonna be fun um, because I'm gonna bring everything back into Scrivener because in Scrivener you have the ability to kind of drag the scenes around on that virtual corkboard because uh, right. like I said, I, I I it's not written in order and uh, and so I have to really because there's certain reveals so certain scenes have to come after certain other scenes so it's gonna be a bit of a puzzle but uh, it's the kind of thing I like working on so I, I think that should be fun. Yeah, and Scrivener will read it to you, which I think is important too. So have Scrivener read some of this stuff back to you and just make sure the different voices sound different, you know, sound yeah. distinct. Um, yeah. And that's something that I'm hoping that your vocal coach has been working on with you as well. Yeah, he's really good at that. Uh, he, yeah. he, he helped me develop the characters in a way that now, even without dialogue tags or setisms, I, I, I look at it and I know who's, who's talking and I couldn't yeah. do that before. So I'm no, really excited about that. That's where it needs to be. And, and this is, you know, something Joanna uh, Penn was talking about the other day too. You know, like she's trying to get away from using the word said, you know, using, yeah. creating dialogue tags, um, mainly because she's, she's also focusing on audiobooks, and, and it gets annoying, you know, when you're listening to an audiobook and, you know, Bob said, Sue said, John said, Sue said, yeah. <laughs> like you don't need, I mean, I know it kind of drops to the background, but you know, if it doesn't need to be there, it's, it's even better. Yeah. Um, so the more, the more that can be avoided. I, I tend to go through on a final draft and anytime I see, you know, like Bob said, I'll try and change that into some type of action. So right. like Bob, Bob leaned to his left instead of Bob said, yeah. Um, and, yeah. and it tends to work a little bit more effective and draw the reader into the, the visual of what's actually happening there. Nice. All right, cool. I got right. my homework. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So who do we have on the, on the, the show today? We got my buddy, Jim Kukrell is coming on today. Uh, another Cleveland guy. He is the founder of the author marketing club. He spent years as co-host of the Somewhere book show and, uh, kind of an, uh, yeah, just a, a really sort of salt of the earth, like blue collar kind of guy. I'm, I'm looking forward to talking to him. He's all, he always like plays it straight. Like you always know what Jim's thinking when he talks. Oh, well, that's refreshing. <laughs> Today, today's world. Yep. <laughs> All right. So here he is, Jim Kukrell. Hey, man, I am super curious. I've been thinking about this question and meaning to ask you. I think I know the answer, but I'm going to ask it anyways. 
what are the chances that you'll ever run for public office again? <laughs> zero point zero, as uh, the great Animal House uh, Blutarski's uh, 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 grade point average. Zero point zero. <laughs> um, yeah, that will never happen again. What uh, what would it take to get you to? Would there be any circumstance where you could imagine that happening again? Yes, the world will have shifted on its axis. <laughs> the political climate. Uh, there, there will be a triggering event. I've always made this argument. I forget what the principle is called. There's a scientific name for it um, that basically argues that the world, no big changes will happen in the world until a major triggering event happens. For example, uh, an alien life form comes to terraform the planet where then all of a sudden humanity must put aside their differences and for the good of the world come together and leave all of the political tribes aside and help each other. So assuming as soon as that happens, <laughs> like when the aliens invade uh, and we all get together, then I'll get back involved in politics. Well, just to fill the listeners in, you, you, were, you held public office here in, in Cleveland. You're a, a fellow Clevelander. And uh, you... Uh, I, I, I guess it would be fair to say you had a rough go at the end, right? Yeah, yeah. I won my city council council position, uh, first time running for office, and I won. And then it was like one of the greatest days of my life. It was so exciting. And then I served two years on term, and then I lost uh, two years later. And it was also one of the greatest days of my life. <laughs> and, um, yeah, po politics today is uh, is just really tough as a creative, as a person like you, Jay, um, it's not built for people like you and me um, who truly just want to create and change the world. It's built for people who want to play games and those types of things. So um, it's a very difficult thing to be in politics in today's world. That's for sure. Well, you have a long history in the internet marketing world and, and SEO and building online businesses. I mean, I, I know you're not a you're not a naive guy. Uh, so, you know, what were your expectations going in when you were thinking about running for office? How were you thinking you were going to make a difference or what did you think the system was going to be like? Well, you know, I didn't realize it was going to be so tribalistic. Right. I, you know, I know that's not a word, but, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the tribe part of it was just so ridiculous at a small. I mean, my city only had you know, 12,000 people in it, right? I mean, it's a small town. I didn't realize it was going to be as uh, vitriolic as uh, national politics, and it was. In some ways, even worse. Um, but I went into it for two reasons. Altruistic reasons, to answer your question, was because I really thought I could help make change in my community. We had bad budgets, and, you know, the city was falling apart. They weren't moving forward. And then the narcissistic reason was, you know, I'm a marketing guy. <laughs> I thought, <laughs> how fun would it be to brand yourself, right? And go out and run on your own name and get people to check a box, uh, metaphorically, in a voting booth for you. I mean, that's the ultimate expression of marketing narcissism, getting people to vote for your name. And uh, that was fun, but it just went to, you know what, after that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I know that you've, you know, you've authored many books. Uh, is there a book about this in your future at any point? So after I got out of office, out of office, 2015 is when I was unelected, right? <laughs> um, and for about a year and a half, I was bitter, 
bitter, bitter, angry, upset at the people in my town, at the people who came after me, ran against me. And during that time period, I actually had an idea for a book. It was going to be called um, Liars, Cheats, and uh, Lollipop Thieves. And it's based off a quote from one of my favorite books, movies with the, the hunt for Red October. Yes. And the senator says to the guy, he says, he says, basically, I'm a politician, which means I'm a, a liar, a cheat. And when people aren't looking, I'm stealing their baby's lollipops, right? <laughs> which is one of the greatest lines I've ever read or written or heard about in a, in a book. So I was going to write a book about that. And I actually started writing. I had the cover done. I had the website up and I started writing the book. And it was just I, I, I got about three or four months into it. And I really had only written a couple chapters. And and somebody asked me, they said, why are you writing this book again? And I had to ask myself that deep, dark question. And I was like, who's going to read this? Nobody wants to read about, you know, how bad politics is, maybe politicos and people like that. And I stopped writing. I'm like, I was writing it as a um, as a as a uh, post-traumatic stress disorder <laughs> reaction. And I guess a valuable lesson for people who are writing and I should, I finally took my own advice, you know, right to market. There's, there wasn't a market for that. Nobody really cared about a whole book about, you know, corrupt politicians. And the, I mean, yeah, there are some books that do that, but you know, why was I writing that book? It, it wasn't really going to do anything for me. Yeah. Uh, I, I think you're probably right. And, uh, I don't know if I said it to you directly, but I was probably one of those people asking you why you were writing the book. Uh, yeah, it was probably you. It might have been. I don't know. I don't. I can't take credit for it. It's it's too easy, from the, seeing that from the outside. But I I think what's great is, uh, I'm pretty sure your next book idea that came after that became unskippable. So maybe yes. you could tell us sort of how did you how did you evolve from where you were, the mindset you were in at that moment where you were sort of bitter and and looking for ways to release some of the stress from, from losing that election to the unskippable brand, which is now your flagship and, and doing really well for you. Well, look, everybody, as they go through life has a series, uh, get back to triggering events, right? Whether it's a health scare or job or whatever, or family or whatever, they have moments in their life, which cause them to react. I mean, as human beings, we typically don't make changes unless we're forced to, right? Yes. Um, you know, whether you have some kind of, you know, witness story or, you know, you lost your leg and now you're doing this or whatever. Everybody has varying degrees of little witness stories in their life that change them. And the election thing was a big thing for me. Uh, was a very, very dark period in my life. Almost ruined my marriage. Almost ruined my businesses. Uh, bad, worse health than ever. And it was probably the darkest point in my life. And out of that triggering event came um, you know, a year and a half of internal therapy of thinking about what I wanted to do. And out of that came the unskippable brand. And um, it all just became clear. One day I woke up, I was like, oh, this is what I want to do. This is how I'm going to take uh, these experiences and transform them into something. And it was just based on a life experience. And um, in, in, in the nonfiction world, you know, you're in the business of solving problems. And one of my, my problem was I was depressed. I went through a bad period and I came out of it and here's how I got there and here's how I did it. And here's how maybe you can do it as well. Now, how did you get out of it? 
uh, just a lot of thought and uh, actually writing that book helped me. Um, but a lot of mindset changes, right? So you and I are big believers and you know, that kind of stuff. I'm not really a woo woo type of guy. No, you're not. However, I do believe in mindset shifts and you do need to, at some point, uh, if you want to make a change, you have to change your mindset. You want to stop smoking. You're not going to stop smoking until you want to, right? You can try everything in the world until you are ready to do it. You're not going to do it. And, um, I had reached that point where I just knew that I had to let go of those terrible things that happened to me and my family during the politics and, um, just make a mindset shift to move on. Um, and until I did that, nothing good was going to happen to me. I could say the same thing about my health. I'm, I'm, you know, overweight. I, I, you know, for years and years, I know that I need to lose weight um, and I need to start getting healthy and exercising. I guess I'm just waiting for that triggering event to happen there to, to get me on the treadmill. Yeah, I, I don't uh, I don't disagree with you at all. And, and I think you're you're very self-aware in a way and that, you know, you need those triggering events, whereas a lot of people don't even have that self-understanding. Uh, because you're right. I, I think in a way you, you have to have these really dark moments or, or you have to fall pretty hard to then have a change. You know, I think we all would like to eat better. We would all like to exercise more. We'd all like to get more sleep. But if you're kind of getting by, there's not much motivation to change that behavior. There's not. And everybody has their own path. So um, some people are very good at you know, applying techniques and strategies and, you know, meditation and, and doing that. But I would say in a general sense, and I'm not a psychologist and I'm not a guru, I would say in my experience, people don't change until they're ready to change. Um, you know, what's that line from the matrix, uh, where the Oracle tells Neo, um, essentially, you know, you weren't ready to hear the answer, right? Right. She had, he asked if he was the one and she said, no, and then later on, uh, he said, well, I am the one. And she's like, yeah, you just weren't ready to believe it yet. And I personally believe that's how everybody's brains are wired. You, you got to be ready to be open for a solution to your problems. Excellent. So tell me how that, let's go from that to unskippable. So what, what is unskippable? How did you get there with it? And, and what are you hoping to be able to do for other people with this brand? Well, yeah, I'm a branding guy. So for years and years, I've been trying to find a brand or a term or something that meant something to me that I felt was applicable to what I want to help people with. I mean, I wrote a book called Attention 10 years ago. That was kind of like the first book in the series of Unskippable before I even knew the term. And then 10 years later, I just said, oh, this is the natural extension to that. And it's just about making yourself, uh, it's another word. I mean, let's be honest. It's another word for saying remarkable, right? I yeah. mean, it's, it's just a clever word and a brand. It's not, you know, that, that I'm building a brand around that I thought, you know, people would remember. I'm a branding guy. I'm, I'm just, let's be honest, right? I thought that's more, it's, it's easier for people to remember that. Plus I can build a trademark around it and build a brand on it. And, um, that's kind of the approach that I take with all of my branding, my marketing and, the content I create. Um, I've spent over 20 years creating content 
and I've failed 99% of the time, but there are small uh, uh, points along my career where I've created content, whether it's an email or a, uh, or a website or a project or a business that have really worked, that were unskippable. And, you know, the, the key to that is just to keep failing and keep innovating and keep trying to create something that you think is going to make a difference. And a lot of them are going to fail. And that's probably the biggest thing is most people who write books or write at all or create content is that they're just not good at failing. Um, they fail once and they stop. You got to you just got to get back up on it and just keep failing over and over and over and over again. And that's what I continue to do. Now, one of these days. I'm going to hit it with one of those big ideas, right? Finally, I'm going to be like that guy, you know, uh, who invented the pet rock, right? And someone's going to be interviewing me. How'd you come up with that idea? Well, I thought about, I made this pet rock and I sold 10 million rocks at $30 each. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. and Well, I think I've, I've always admired you because you you've gone like you've taken those chances you you've taken those risks you uh you have two teenagers and a wife you have a family and a mortgage and and yet you've been uh self-employed your own your own business owner for decades uh so you know what what do you say to someone who might be sitting there now and thinking like man i'd really like to to try this i'd really like to make my own way in the world but like i have the mortgage and I have the kids tuition and I have, you know, all this other stuff. And I, I can't take that chance. Like, what do you, what do you say to someone who's in the, in that position right now? Yeah, that's a tough one because, you know, I didn't become an entrepreneur until I was around 30. Uh, I grew up like everyone else, go to school, get a job. You hate work for the man working, you know, work in a cubicle. My dad worked in a factory. My mom was a school teacher. You know, so I was indoctrinated into that, which is, you know, go to the job you don't like and pay your taxes and all that stuff. And it wasn't until um, I was time my first kid was born where I just had I was forced to step it up because my wife decided, you know, we decided together she didn't want to work. She wanted to stay home and raise the kids. And I was forced to become an entrepreneur and make money. And fortunately for me, that was, you know, right when the Internet was taking off. So I kind of capitalized on that. But at the end of the day, it comes down to your pain level of, um, you know, how, how where you, when you go into the hospital and you got a kidney stone and they say, what's your pain level? Is it a one or a 10? And when I had my kidney stone, it was an 11. <laughs> and, um, you know, what's your pain level right now? I mean, are you, uh, I'm 48, you know, I'm unemployable at this point because I'm an entrepreneur and 48 years old, no one's hiring me. Um, what's your pain level? Do you want to spend the rest of your days in a cubicle at a job you don't like? And yeah, you got mortgage to pay and all this stuff. But at, at the end of the day, you know, time is flowing fast. There, there's never been a greater time in the history of the world to build an, a business, to create content, to have the opportunity to be successful doing what you love to do because of the internet. So uh, there's so many ways to do it. Otherwise, writing books or creating music or whatever it is, there's an opportunity for you. So you just kind of have to have that mindset shift and go out there and do it. But so many people are still too indoctrinated into the, um, this is the way I have to do it. I got to go to my job that I don't like and I got to do this. And and th- that's fine. There's a lot of people who are okay with that. I'm not. 
um we were uh, i was out with my kids the other night and um we were walking around downtown cleveland area and i was looking at these offices in the in the buildings i looked at my kids and i looked up there i go do you answer me honestly do you both ever want to work in like an office with like you know overhead fluorescent lights and and they both looked at me and they're like no because i've indoctrinated them into that i'm like you don't want to work in an environment where you're not going to be happy. Um, you want to do what you want to do. So that's my long-winded answer to that. <laughs> but that's a mindset shift for everybody. Yeah, it sure is. And and I think, too, you know, given the time that we're in, I think you're right. I think there is incredible opportunity to be had. And playing devil's advocate, uh, what traditionally has been the safe route is is no longer a guarantee. I mean, you look at either pensions being mismanaged, you look at downsizing, layoffs, overseas, jobs moving overseas. What people used to think was the safe play might not be as safe as we thought it was. Well, no, you're absolutely right. And what's interesting is if you look at the younger people, Generation Z, which my kids are, and you look at the opportunities in front of them, they are rejecting, you know, standard traditional uh, jobs. They are they are more interested in experiences. Um, they don't want to pay car insurance. They don't want to have a car. They don't want to pay mortgages. Um, you know what's easier? You know paying your yearly car insurance or just getting a lift, right? Um, IKEA, uh, billion billions and billions of dollars a company. Their entire business model is based around uh, cheap buying cheap furniture. Well, guess what? They're testing out rental. Of furniture why because younger people don't even want to own furniture right they they they, they don't they, they're like more interested in just renting something so everything is changing and if you look at the younger people you see that the the, sh the mindset shift is happening with people and it's not about ownership anymore it's about experiences and uh, i think that's refreshing yeah, I, I agree with you. And I'm curious to know, as a as an author, a business owner, an entrepreneur, and a content creator and a creative in this new world, given this, this mindset shift that maybe we're all in culturally, how are you looking in the, at the next, say, one to three or two to four years? How are you hoping or what ways are you hoping to reach people who are now in this mindset? Well, yeah, I mean everyone has their goals, what they want to do. I mean, I want to live in a remote cabin, you know, in Alaska. Right. But I'll, I have no skills out there. So I'd probably die in the first three days, but <laughs> doesn't mean that it's not where I want to live and what I want to do. Um, you know, so have your goal and your plan and where you want to get to it and, and work. The, see, that's the chicken or the egg problem. It's like, well, Jim, what I want to do is get in a motor home and, you know, live in the motor home and live my life and drive around from state to state and, well, you know, it's hard to do when you're 48 years old and you got a mortgage and two kids about ready to go to college. You can't just do that. So I get it. I totally get it, um, which is why I wish I would have figured this stuff out when I was younger. Um, but it doesn't mean that you can't go out and build something now. Like I said, there's never been a greater time in the history of the world to build an online business, to create a brand instantly. You just have to have the vision for it and the pain level high enough to get it done. Do these kind of conversations come up when you do your your client work with authors? Are, are you talking about this kind of stuff with them? 
Not really. It's mostly just, you know, most people are interested in just the marketing aspects of stuff. Um, these are the kind of talks that's come out when I do speaking engagements, a lot of this kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would, I would imagine people are paying to have a very specific problem solved and that's why they're, they're coming to you. Well, look, I mean, when you go to speak and whether you're, you're helping people, people are looking for two things. They're looking for outcomes and emotions. So when you're writing a nonfiction book, you're looking for outcomes. When you go to Google, you're looking for outcomes. Um, when you go to Facebook or social media, you're usually looking for, you know, you're looking for outcomes, but you're also looking for emotional stuff, pictures of kids and family and stuff like that. So I think once you understand that that's really what drives people is, you know, in success and content is outcomes and emotions. And when you structure your content around those two things and, and then add the third one, which is engagement. So engagement has become the dirty little word, word since social media has launched, you know, uh, everyone wants engagement, engagement, engagement. Well, then they varied it by, oh, if you get enough likes, you're, you're engaging. If you get enough people to open your email list, you're, you're, you got great engagement. But at the end of the day, you know, we're starting to move away from that. Instagram's going to start removing the ability to see how many people liked your post or showing it on the front end. Um, everything is shifting. Everything is shifting. And that's just a, a, the way that society is going today. I think the biggest thing that marketers or content people have to figure out moving forward is as the noise becomes bigger and bigger and bigger, how do you create more engagement beyond likes, beyond that kind of stuff with your audience and creating the thousand true fans that you're really going to need to sustain your business moving forward? Yeah, great point. And I've even heard Seth Godin talking about scaling that down from Kevin Kelly's thousand true fans to a hundred or even 10. And, and it, it seems as though so much of what we do is fractured in a way that you don't, you don't need to scale. You just need to have engagement from the right people and be able to serve the right people. And, uh, and th th there could be a decent living, not an extravagant one, but a decent living for anyone who's willing to do that. Yeah. And I believe that's where the future is going. I mean, look at politics in the United States. Um, you have a, a, a 370 million people or whatever it is divided in half, except for like, you know, like 3 billion people who are <laughs> undecided. And our election, national elections are coming down to three counties out of three states. Right. And how engaged are you with that audience? Because they're the ones who are going to be making the decision. Brands are facing this problem now. Um, I write about this in Unskippable is, you know, the belief-driven buyers. People are making choices on what brands they're going to buy from based upon uh, if they share a common belief with them, whether it's the environment or whatever. And they're making actual purchasing decisions to support a company. 64% uh, of people consider themselves that way. And they will actually not buy from you if they know that you don't support their cause. And that's where the world's going. And more important than ever to make sure that you have your tribe on your side and they understand who you are and what you're about. Because if not, things can go bad for you. But if you do do it the right way, you're absolutely going to have a tribe that will be those 100 true fans that you know could support your entire career. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Uh, I'd like to kind of come full circle here and, and maybe close out the conversation with a, a last question. It's a, it's a bit vague on purpose, but I'm uh, and so you can answer it however you want, but 
uh, as both a, a business person and an, and a writer, uh, what is the what is sort of your general approach to the business of writing? Well, it's varied. You know, I I'm a butterfly chaser, and I I write passionately. Um, one of the things I've had to learn from you and from other people is to do a better job at writing the market. Um, I one of the ways I'm doing that right now is I'm co-authoring a, a fiction book with a fiction author and we are specifically writing it to market. Um, for me in the nonfiction side, um, I I've done a poor job at writing specifically to market until this last book, which I believe was a good fit, but the other ones weren't, um, and were a little bit difficult. So figuring out how to write to market so I can sustain the life that I want to have, which is the life without a boss. All right. That was Jim Kukrell out of Cleveland, Ohio. And I, I do need to make a, a quick note here and say, in case you guys didn't pick up on it, this was recorded prior to the pandemic. <laughs> but um, what's crazy is some of the stuff we talked about, it almost seemed like it wasn't recorded then. Uh, so I, yeah, I, I don't know. You want to you wanna start with some takeaways or some thoughts you had on that? He scared the piss out of me when he just said <laughs> running for office. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like, I like you could not pay me enough money right now to run for a political office, a HOA position, like any anything like that. Like it's just it just feels like you get shot just saying the wrong word. He had a rough the, time with that, man. Whew. Yeah. And it's just, you know, you, you don't get paid well for any of these positions. I think people look at politicians and they feel that, you know, they're, they're making you know money hand over fist. But in reality, they're not. I mean, a lot of them have to support multiple homes, you know, one in Washington, D.C., one in their current location. Um, you know, and they're they're getting a civil, you know, civil salary. It's it's um it's it's thankless work, you know, for, yeah. for most of those people. Um, you know, more power to them. I mean, if they're actually able to, to do it, like the ones who are willing to do it, like they, they should be put up on a pedestal, whether you agree with them or not, the fact that they're willing to get out there and 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 do that. But um I I know I wouldn't do it. <laughs> what do you think about his theory on triggering events for people to making major life changes have you found in your own life that you've had to have some type of triggering event before you made a change yeah and, and i kick myself for it you know like if we use health as an example like he, he was saying that he was overweight and he but he's waiting for a triggering event to force him to to make a change um you know like my glucose level was got high you know which is my, my blood sugar and it's basically pre-diabetes which is silly for me because anybody that knows me like I, i'm you know my weight is ideal i run almost four or five miles every single day um my wife is a, a former vegetarian so she makes sure i eat really healthy um so it's just you know it's a family thing like my mom's got the same problem but like i'm right there on the border so i have to be very careful of what i eat um and and i wasn't always but now i'm you know i'm 49 years old and it's like your body just doesn't bounce back yeah I, if i have a snickers bar like it'll literally put me on the couch because I, you know, have a sugar rush and a sugar crash. And then, you know, it, you know, I have to try and recuperate from that. And like, you know, 10, 20 years ago, it wasn't like that. So the sooner you can write some of these problems, the, the better. Um, but it does take a triggering event, I think, you know, unfortunately to kick a lot of us in the butt and, and force us to do it. Are, are, are you in that same boat? Or are you willing? Cause I know you made a major change too, right? Yeah. I, my triggering event was a, a, a bad flare up of gout out of nowhere. I mean, I later found out that, well, I mean, my diet was terrible, but I later found out that it runs in my family. So I was predisposed to it to begin with, but it was such a traumatic event. Like I, I wouldn't have changed my diet or my, my exercise regimen or anything if I didn't have something like that to kind of force me into it. No, nah, but like diet and exercise will fix probably 90% of the, 
you know, health related issues. Uh, but most people aren't willing to go there. Um, doctors would much rather throw a pill at you yeah. um, than, than tell you to go out there and eat some broccoli, um, which, which, which is sad, but you know, and you know, I don't want to get into the, the medical system, healthcare system, but you know, like they're getting kickbacks from that, you yep. know, the, they're getting paid to put you on a particular pill. Um, that's why when you were, you know, in your teens and a doctor was saying that the acne that you had wasn't related to what you were eating, it's, it's something else and you need to be on this medication, you know, like that's, it all stems back to that. Um, but diet and exercise are huge. Um, on, I mean, I can tell you just from the couple tweaks I had to make in my own diet to deal with the glucose problem, I feel better. Yeah. You know, I've got way more energy now than I did before. And, you know, with a toddler running around the house, I need that energy. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, so it's like those changes are always for the better. Um, and, you know, like if I see a candy bar now, like I, I had one like a, a couple of days ago and like it made me feel like crap. Yeah. You know, so it's like you tend to like the stuff that you liked before that was causing you to feel bad. And, you know, like when you go back to it after you've cut it out for a little while, um, you know, that thrill just isn't there anymore. And like you, you don't need it. Um, he had also brought up how you have to just keep following, uh, falling over and trying and trying yeah. and trying again. Like I, I'm a huge, yeah, I'm a huge believer in that. Yep. Um, you know, if, if you're not willing to take the shot, you know, nobody's going to hand it to you, you know, so you have to be willing to fail over and over again. And, and anybody who's ever succeeded in life, they've got a hundred failures behind them. And if you sit down and, and talk to them, they, they will rattle them all off. Uh, no, nobody hits it out of the park on the first shot. Yeah, totally agree. And And I think too, what's really important about that is, you can't fail if you're not trying. And I think a lot of times, myself included, you know, we don't take risks or we don't take chances because we don't want to fail. But th then, then you just become a, a passive participant in life. And, uh, you know, Jim said he tried, you know, 99% of the things he's tried has failed. But that mm -hmm. yet there he is, you know, two, two, three decades into being an entrepreneur and a self-employed business owner. So, yeah, you know, there, there's no... Um, there's no way of taking the pain away. Like you, are, if you're going to try something, you're going to fail and it's going to hurt. Yeah. And he also brought up how he couldn't go back. And, and I totally agree. Like I, there's no way I could go back to the corporate world after, yeah. <laughs> after working on my own like this. And, you know, it brings up a lot of questions because I was raised, you know, same way you probably were, same way he was, you know, you, you finish high school with a good GPA, you go to college, you get a job, you work for a good company, you get a nice pension, you get a mortgage, you get a car payment, you know, and you support all that and everything goes full circle. You know, like I've got two and a half college degrees and I get paid to make shit up. Like I'm, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not using my college degrees. <laughs> Neither am I, yeah. Yeah. So like when I look at my daughter, you know, like, do I really want her to rack up a couple hundred grand in debt? Cause that's what it will be by the time she's old enough to, to go there. Um, you know, it, it's, it's a tricky thing, but I mean, at the same time going to school, like that taught me a lot. It taught me a lot, you know, about the discipline of, you know, having to just study for a class, having to be somewhere at a certain time and, and things like that, like that, that helps prepare you, I think, for certain aspects of life, you know, whether you use your degree or not. So it's, it's a, it's a weird, weird thing. And I don't know where it's going to be in another, you know, 10, 15 years, because I think the entire world is shifting um, from, from that mindset. So, so we'll have to see. Yeah. I mean, my, my son's going to be entering college in 10 months and we don't even know what that's going to look like. So yeah, 10 years, whew, who knows? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, but as, as an entrepreneur, um, guy can't talk today. Um, you know, it, it, it's all on you, you know, which is, it's both good and bad. You know, if you, if you fall on your, your face, it's, you know, you have to pick yourself back up again. There's, there's no support system there, but at the same time, I, I think the, what you can actually succeed at as an entrepreneur that, you know, what, you, what you can reap as far as benefits are, are, you know, tenfold versus working for somebody else. Yep. Um, so you have to weigh all those things. I mean, we only get one shot at life, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's true. 
So, um, yeah, it was a great conversation with Jim. I know you guys can't see him, but Jim's a big guy and his heart's just as big. He's a, he truly cares about people in a way that uh, I, f- I find rare. So anytime Jim's got some advice, I definitely listen. He's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a smart guy. Yeah. Cool. So who do we got next week? Next week we have KJ Howe, um, who is Kimberly Howe. Um, she's a, a writer first and foremost, but she's also the, the reigning president of the International Thriller um, Association. Um, and she's been doing that for a while and one of the nicest people I've ever met in, in the industry um, and, and a wealth of knowledge. And she literally knows everybody in the, in the thriller world. Um, so a great person to talk to. Yeah, looking forward to it. A little disappointed we didn't get to meet face-to-face this year at Thriller Fest, but uh, fingers crossed for 2021 on that. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Well, to our listeners, we appreciate your support. And if you like what you're hearing, please tell a friend or consider leaving us a review on iTunes. Until next time, have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers, Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.